If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew and chapter 12. Matthew and chapter 12. Typically, I like camping out in one text. But since uh, this is the final part of our Forgotten God series on the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we're actually going to go to four, okay? Uh, there'll be four points, as I'll explain in a moment, and each point will be in a different text. So we're going to sit in Matthew 12 for the first point, and then I will guide you the rest of the way, okay? But just have your Bible open and ready to follow along. So as I said, this is the third and final part for our Holy Spirit series called Forgotten God. Next week, finally, Gospel of Luke. We're going to start it. We've been waiting for it. Uh, we're excited about it, God willing. Uh, and it'll line up uh, with Advent and Christmas as well, so that'll be cool. And then we'll, after Christmas, keep going through the Gospel of Luke. All right. So if you don't have a Luke Scripture Journal, make sure you grab yours uh, between now and next week. But for today, let's go to uh, Matthew 12 first. Start in... now. <clears throat> 30 through 32 is going to be on the screen, but I actually want us to start in 28. So let's read Matthew 12, starting in verse 28, and we'll go through um, 32. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. God's Word says, But if it is, Jesus speaking about his casting out of demons and healing, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man, that indeed he may plunder his house? Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Amen. That's God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Uh, a few years ago, Amazon released a show that was very well received with a certain segment of people, though it only lasted one season, and it was called Forever. Have any of you watched that show on Amazon? I knew it. And it starred SNL alums Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph. And it had a very unique opening, as in the very first few minutes of the very first episode, there isn't any dialogue at all. Instead, there's this montage of the two main characters, and it shows how they met and how they fell in love, how exciting and fun their relationship was at the start. It shows him propose. It shows them get married. It shows him... Uh, them get a house, and him becoming a doctor, and them going on vacations, etc. Then it shows him cook a meal, and he brings it to her, and at first she's excited. And they go to this lake house and, and fish, and, it, and it's fun, and they're having a blast together. But then they show him bring her the same meal again, and she's less excited this time. Then they go to the same lake, and they're kind of bored. And then he brings out the meal again, and she's more indifferent. And then it, all of this is meant to show that this relationship that started exciting and adventurous has turned into a sort of ho-hum life as they fell into this rut. They went from new and thrilling to sort of ignoring one another's presence or, or merely tolerating one another. 
And this came to my mind as I came across a quote from this gentleman, Richard Lovelace, and I was thinking about how most Christians seem to relate to the Holy Spirit. And Lovelace said this, even where Christians know about the Holy Spirit doctrinally, they have not necessarily made a deliberate point of getting to know Him personally. The typical relationship, he says, between the believers and the Holy Spirit in today's church is too often like that between the husband and a wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof, and the husband makes constant use of his wife's services, but he fails to communicate with her, recognize her presence, and celebrate their relationship together. Does this not accurately describe how many Christians relate to the Spirit, do you think? Like the opening montage of forever, many Christians have gone from <clears throat> excitement to routine. Perhaps ignoring the Spirit altogether. Don't we all remember our conversions? Who could forget their conversion and the thrill of giving their lives to Christ and of being moved by the internal work of the Spirit and a willingness to say, I will do anything for the kingdom and an insatiable hunger to know more and more about the gospel. Is that not how you felt when you were converted? Is it? We might have thought that that thrill would never end. But then we fell into a routine. Does that describe you, I wonder? Into a rut. Into a place where we may not even think about the Holy Spirit at all. Let alone relying on Him or asking for His power and intercession. He's there, and somewhere in our subconscious, we know He's there. But we'd prefer if He stay in another room. And we'll let Him know when we could use Him. The same could be said of many churches, do you think? Y'all are extra quiet today. How often... Is the Spirit talked about, worshipped, prayed to, relied on, and truly the source of church's power and witness? Not much, it seems. And even when we talk of revival, how many times are we the ones who schedule it on a calendar rather than it being something we always seek for the Spirit to bring about in His timing? A.W. Tozer once famously said, maybe you've heard this quote, if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. This is a tragic truth for too many churches. Too much of what we try to achieve, we could do even if there were no Holy Spirit. And for many Christians, their spiritual life, maybe it describes you, is dried up, powerless, humdrum, cold, and lifeless. And why? Because there's no intimacy with the triune God given through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We could press into the marriage analogy a bit more. If you said that you and your spouse don't seem to connect, that the spark is gone, that your relationship is dull and in a rut, but I ask in response, do you pursue your spouse? Do you go out of your way for them? Do you surprise them? Do you make time for them? Do you get intentionally close to them? And you say no to all of that. How can you be surprised that your relationship is in the doldrums? 
If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You do not have to go far to meet him. So if your spiritual life is powerless and cold, it's because you have relegated the Holy Spirit to a separate room and refused him intimacy. Perhaps you've neglected the means of grace that he has graciously given to you in order for you to fellowship with him and grow through him. You know, there's a song that I'm sure you have heard. It's called, Holy Spirit, You Are Welcome Here. It's by Jesus Culture. And the lyrics say just that. The Holy Spirit is invited to be present. And I get what it's trying to say, but don't you see that he is already present? He doesn't need to be invited to the church or your life if you're a Christian. It isn't, don't you see, him who must be moved. It is you and I who must see him for who he is and tap into his available means to live the life that the triune God intends for us to live. And that's the main thrust of what we wanted you to see in this short series. To see that the Holy Spirit is no impersonal force, no it, no mere expression of God's power, but very God of very God, and without him, you can neither be saved, nor sustained, nor grow, nor pursue life as it was meant to be lived. And so today, let's explore, like I said, four more aspects of the Spirit, which will have four corresponding exhortations for you. Okay? in hopes that you will see the importance of the doctrine of the Spirit and never go another day without turning to Him. Okay? So first, point number one. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. Believe Him. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. Believe Him. Now the first text we'll consider, it's not an easy one, okay? this Matthew 12 passage. Let's consider the context. Okay? Jesus is healing as He is wont to do, and He was has another run-in with the Pharisees as they are wont to do. The healing that immediately precedes the text we read is of a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, okay? And Jesus healed him, the demon left him, and now he could see and speak. The crowds, of course, were amazed at the miraculous healing of the Lord, but the Pharisees were trying to find a way to get around what just happened. So they say that Jesus cast out the demons by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. So Jesus first points out the absurdity of this claim. Is this not an absurd claim? Why on earth would Satan cast, want demons cast out of people? Right? Like, that, that, would, that would be to divide in on himself. And of course, Jesus says the kingdom divided what? It cannot stand. Jesus shows how illogical their claim is. Rather, says Jesus, he is performing miracles by the power of who? He tells us, doesn't it? Jesus relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to cast out demons and heal. And he says this is a sign that the kingdom has come. And he compares himself to a plunderer who has entered the strong man's house and bound him, and that strong man is Satan. Now, he gives the Pharisees a warning, okay? He's warning them. He tells them that every sin can be forgiven, even blasphemy against him. But there's one sin that cannot be forgiven, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is a warning to them to not reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Christ 
or they will stand before the throne of God and be found wanting. Now, before you consider the seriousness of the sin that can't be forgiven, of course, that's where we're drawn to, we should be struck by the fact that every sin can be forgiven, right? Like, shouldn't we be struck by that, that there's nothing you can do, nothing you can do that God won't forgive you for? That should, that should cause us to be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy and love of Christ, Yes? No one is outside the possibility of being forgiven should they repent. No one can be too bad for Jesus. That's startling grace, is it not? But there, there is this one thing, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Essentially, this is what it is, okay? It is a settled rejection of the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. A settled rejection of the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. It's persistent, impentant unbelief. It is not about one single act done in your life, okay? It is not even so much about blasphemous language against God. Even that can be forgiven, and we see numerous examples of that, like, I don't know, Saul of Tarsus. Rather, this is a conscious, persistent Wicked rejection of the Spirit's witness. We saw in week one that the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of sin, right? He convicts the world of sin. He he shows that we are separated from God due to our rebellion. He shows us the seriousness of that sin. He shows us that we cannot be reconciled to God by our own might, and he shows us the truth of Jesus. He shows us the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus alone and Jesus' beauty, and he calls us to give our lives to Christ in order to be saved. Now, what blasphemy against the Spirit is then is to tell the Holy Spirit in all of that that he is a liar, that you are not a sinner, or at least not that bad, that you are either you, you are, you are not separated from God or there is no God, that you don't need to repent, that Jesus did not die in your place, that he did not resurrect, that you don't need to be saved, and that you don't care what either he or Jesus has to say. But again, it's not just a one-time act. You could be convicted and convicted and convicted and tell the Spirit, no, 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 but eventually come to saving faith, right? By finally ceasing to resist the Spirit's witness about Jesus and the gospel. This isn't that. This is, as John Paul II said, the radical refusal to be converted. So it is to live a life of rejecting this Holy Spirit's testimony, but die still refusing and rejecting. Do you see? I think of uh, Kenneth Keithley's illustration of salvation and our part in it. He said, imagine waking up to find you are being transported by an ambulance to the emergency room. Okay, so you wake up in an ambulance and you're going to the emergency room. It's clearly evident that your condition requires serious medical help. Okay? If you do nothing, you will be delivered to the hospital, right? All you got to do is what? Just lay there, and they'll take you to the hospital. However, if for whatever reason you demand to be let out, the driver will comply. He may express regret and give warnings, but he will still let you go. You receive no credit for being taken to the hospital, right? But you incur the blame for refusing service of the ambulance. Do you see? 
In this illustration, you don't do anything to arrive at the hospital. The only thing you do, the only thing you have the ability to do is resist. If you believe in Christ and the gospel, it is because and only because the Holy Spirit brought you to faith. If you do not believe, it's only because you resisted. So what Jesus is getting at is that those who blaspheme the Spirit wake up in the ambulance. He tells them they are very sick. He tells them they will die forever without help. He tells them that there is a physician who can heal, and he is the only one who can heal. And this person says, I don't care, let me out. And the Spirit acquiesces. But it isn't only the one-time refusal that does it. It's the Spirit showing up with an ambulance over and over and over again, and the person saying, I'm fine, I'm not sick, leave me alone, until they die still having refused the Spirit and repeatedly calling his testimony about Christ a lie. But now, I want you to hear me Christian, okay? You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. It's not possible. Because the fact that you are a Christian, right, means that you have believed the Spirit's testimony about Jesus and your need for him. G.I. Packer said, Christians who fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin show by that anxiety they have not done so. But now here's my purpose in bringing you this text, okay? Number one, if you're not a Christian, to call you to cease your resisting of the Spirit's testimony about Christ. Because if you die still resisting, you will be lost forever. And two, for Christians, to remind you once again that what we're talking about here in the Holy Spirit, is God. Yes, he is a person in the Godhead equal to the Father and the Son. There is no hierarchy in the Trinity. The Spirit is not a force or an it, but a divine person. For if he were a mere force, why would the one sin you could commit not be forgiven for to be call him a liar about his testimony about Christ? He must be God. And so, Christian, exalt him and exalt Christ with him. Listen to him. Hear his testimony about Jesus and Jesus' beauty and lean on him and trust his care and conviction. When he tells you that you are in sin, hear him and go to him and repent by his power. Don't assume you know better than him. Listen to him. Trust his judgment over against your fickle hearts and thoughts. Trust his care and hear him point to Christ. Feel his comfort over what you see or think in your circumstances, and since he's God, you can also worship him. Yes? You can worship him and pray to him and exalt him. But be sure you are hearing as he points you to the truth and beauty and greatness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, shown supremely through his life, substitutionary death, resurrection, and ascension, as he reigns and rules when? Right now and forever. Now, this leads us to our second point in exhortation, point number two. The Spirit illumines the Word. Listen to Him. The Spirit illumines the Word. Listen to Him. So we want to listen to the Holy Spirit. Yes? Yes? How do we do that? For this, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Or you can uh, see it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. 
And we're going to read through verse 16. All right. I, I don't hear pages turning, so I assume you're there with me. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rules of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rules of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, when no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things... God is revealed to us through what? The Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except what? The Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So here Paul is saying that true knowledge of God, especially knowledge of God that saves, can only be obtained through the Spirit of God. So again, we see that the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary for salvation, right? There is no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. Paul is telling a church obsessed with worldly wisdom and knowledge that they cannot procure true saving knowledge of God by their own determination or intellect. It must come from the Spirit. You see, he says in verse 8 that not even the rulers have this knowledge, right? Like not even people at the tippy top have this knowledge because if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, if they knew who it was truly that they were dealing with when they were encountering Jesus, that he is the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified him. But since it was necessary for him to be crucified on behalf of the sins of the world, the Spirit did not impart that knowledge to them. But let's again note what verses 10 and 11 say, what they show us. Who can search the deep things of God? Who knows the thoughts of God? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And says Paul, by matter of analogy, who knows the thoughts of a man more than the man himself? Therefore, the Holy Spirit must be God, right? He must be God, for only God knows the depths of God, and only God knows the mind of God. Ipso facto, the Holy Spirit must be God. Now, you see verse 12, Paul says that we have received the Holy Spirit. This means we are Christians. Yes? <laughs> Only Christians receive the Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, what? You're not a Christian. And the Spirit gives freely to believers the knowledge about God. He, like we've been saying throughout the series, points us to Christ, aids us in seeing his beauty and learning about who he truly is. A natural man, verse 14, cannot accept these things because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And thus the things of God appear as foolishness to him. God's truths, therefore 
are received truly from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit speaks, and he speaks to reveal the things of God to us. Are you tracking with me? But would you tell me if you weren't? But then, the, no, you're like, no, because you'd go backward, right? But then the question must be asked, how does he speak? You know, so many people ask, how, maybe you've thought this before, how could I find God's will for my life? And they look for signs, right? In the clouds. Is it peace in my heart? Is it an open door? Is it a message in my toast or alphabet soup? Or magic eight ball? Is it a warm, fuzzy, or tingly feeling? Maybe we pick up that book, Jesus Calling, and we see the author claim she, Jesus talked to her. So she wrote it down and made millions and think, I want God to talk to me like that. I bring you good news, friends. And you know where I'm going with this. You can hear the word of God. You can hear God speak to you. You can know his will for your life. All you have to do, you see where I'm going? Is pick up your Bible and what? And read it. <laughs> you want to hear God speak? Read your Bible. You want to God hear, hear God speak audibly? Read your Bible out loud. Or you could download the Dwell Bible app and it'll read it for you. As J.D. Greer said, the most reliable guide to the will of God is the word of God. The Spirit primarily guides us to obey God's revealed commands, adopt His values, and become the kind of people He wants us to be. For it is the Bible that is God's primary means of revelation to us. It is the Bible. That is, 2 Timothy 3, inspired by who? The Holy Spirit. And it is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness from Genesis to Revelation. Don't, don't take an exacto knife to your Bible like Thomas Jefferson did, okay? The whole thing is equally inspired by the Spirit, and the whole thing is profitable for the soul of the Christian. See, God does speak, and it is through his word that he primarily does this. We don't need to look for other signs, not when the Holy Spirit both inspired the word and 1 Corinthians 2 illumines it for us while we read it. Do you see? Burke Parsons once said, so many are looking for special revelation from God while it sits on their shelves collecting dust. Can I suggest that one of the reasons some of your spiritual lives maybe are so dried up May your, may your zeal for Christ is wanting. Your relationship with God feels cold or routine. is because there's a lack of tapping into the means by which the Spirit intends to keep you warm. A lack of hunger for the Word of God given by the Spirit of God to teach us about the things of God. You'll recall last week, I drew off of John Bunyan's classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, a few times. You remember that? No? Well, let's return. Okay, we're going to go back to the interpreter's house. If you forgot, or we're not here, because I knew you'd do that to me, let me remind you that in the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the main character's name is Christian. He's meant to portray, of course, every Christian, right, as he travels this world towards the celestial city, looking to the next, looking to heaven. And as Christian is set to go out on his journey, he visits the interpreter's house, and the interpreter is meant to picture the Holy Spirit. Okay? Well, the interpreter shows Christians a great many things. He then interprets them for him. 
And he does this so Christian will remember these lessons, right, as he encounters many troubles in his journey. Well, in one scene, the interpreter takes Christian to a room, and it has a roaring fire, okay? This massive fire roaring. And on one side, there's a man who's continuously throwing buckets of water on it, trying to put it out, and it won't go out. Well, on the other side was a man throwing oil on the fire to keep it burning hot and to counter the man who was throwing the water. Do you see? So the fire burned hotter and hotter. The oil worked, outworked the water, even as the first man continued to put water on it. What does this mean? The interpreter explained that the fire is the work of grace in the heart of the believer. Okay? And the man throwing the water was the devil, while the oil was poured by Christ. The more of Christ one gets, the more the fire in their heart blazes. Do you see? Why has your zeal grown cold? Could it be because you're allowing the things of the world? Satan's buckets of water, the schedules, the busyness, the activities, the procurement of more stuff, the indulgence of the world, the entertainment, the hobbies, the distractions, seize your time and attention and thus dump buckets of water on your heart. Have you allowed that to happen? Like we can't, if we say my zeal is burned cold and all those things are distracting us, we, we should not be confused as to what is causing it. Could it be that you are not countering those buckets of water from Satan with the oil of time and the word of God? Spirit of God has inspired this word and given it to you. Like how lucky are you? know how many Christians in the world don't even have a book of the Bible? How many Bibles do you have on your shelf? He has given, what a grace to give us the Word of God. He inspired this thing. And he, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illuminate it for you. <laughs> and the more you're in it, the more you'll see the beauty of Jesus, and the more you'll see of God, and you will grow warmer and warmer as Christ douses your heart with oil. Let me offer, before we move on to our next point, I want three easy application points, okay, for this. Three sub-points. One, read your Bible. <laughs> Carve out time to get the Holy and Spirit-inspired and errant infallible word. Make it a non-negotiable part of your daily routine. Like, who's in charge of your schedule again? Oh, you, right? <laughs> you forget to eat? No, treat the Bible like it's bread. F find just a little time, carve out all the distractions, get in the Word. Surely you can make time for this, right? Did you know that the average American spends 2.8 hours every day on social media? 70% use Facebook every single day and spend more, more than 30 minutes on it. The same with TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. This, this stat that I'm about to give you, I was just like... The current rate of social media consumption, at the current rate of social media consumption, the average American will spend six years and eight months of their life using social media. Six years! And yet, Bible literacy is falling fast. I mean, the stats I shared with you in the sermon, from Sermon 1 of this series, where that study, remember this is what was the impetus of me wanting to do this series? 62% of self-described born-again Christians believe the Holy Spirit is not a real being. 62%, but a force or an it 
merely a symbol of God's power and presence. That's alarming. But it's no wonder <laughs> when we don't read the Bible that would tell us differently about the Holy Spirit. Let's say, okay, let's say for the sake of argument that you are someone who spends 2.8 hours every day on social media, okay? If we spent that same amount of time in the Bible intake, we could read all of the New Testament in less than a week. And the whole Bible in a month. If, you know, it only takes five minutes to read all of Jude. Five minutes! It takes 15 to read Philippians or Ruth. And an hour to read Nehemiah, Nehemiah or Romans. Or maybe like, you know, you haven't been, maybe you got behind on your, your Luke reading plan before it starts next week, uh, and you're like, oh, I didn't read Luke before we started it. You know that you could, if, this week, if you decided, I'm going to read Luke, two hours and 24 minutes, that's all it'll take. Surely out of your 168 hours this week, you could do that, right? The point here, okay, is not to make you feel some kind of guilt for neglecting to read the Bible. Like, what, what's that going to do? Like, you got to begrudgingly read the Bible? What, what, how does that help you? The point is to show you that if you want to keep your heart warm of the things of God, to fight sin, to know God's will, and I assume you want all of that, then take up your Bible and read. Parents, can I talk to parents for a minute? You know that the world is catechizing your kids? Do you know that? Your kids are being catechized by social media, by what they watch, and by their peers, who are with them more than you are. They're, to they're being told all the live long day what to value, right? What their ethics should be. And it, it's being all shaped by the world, whether you like it or not. But now, okay, here's my question. Are you countering the catechism of the world by catechizing them in the word of God? Are you countering it? If not, you cannot be surprised if their ethics are being shaped in a way contrary to Scripture. You, you cannot be surprised. Take up the Word and be an example and then push them to it. But don't just read it. The second application, I would say, is to pray to the Spirit and depend on Him to illuminate for you. Before you even start reading, pray to the Spirit. Do you do that? Do you, do you pray to the Spirit before you read it? When you come to worship gathering, let me ask you this. Do you pray for the Spirit to work through your heart? Or through mine? Or through everyone's in this room? He not only inspired it, he intends to illuminate, so ask him to do so. And the third one, third application point, is to read the Word humbly. Don't come to Scripture with an agenda, okay? <laughs> Don't tell it what you want it to say. Come in asking God to reveal his agenda, not yours. Because scripture rightly read should challenge us, convict us, and change us. Martin Luther once said, the Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear toward the word of God and constantly says, teach me, teach me, teach me. The Spirit resists the proud. So, the Holy Spirit illumines the word. Listen to him. Point number three. The Spirit loves you. Do not grieve him. Ephesians 4 is where I will be for this one. Ephesians 4, and then when you get there, jump down to verse 25. This is point number three. The Spirit loves you. Do not grieve Him. 
Ephesians 24, 25, and it'll be on the screen as well. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun down, go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ and God forgave you. Contextually, this passage appears in the part of the letter where Paul is offering imperatives or commands, okay, which are based on the gospel indicatives of chapter 1 through 3, okay, of what Christ has done. Here he's talking about how we ought to live and how we ought to live in community of the church in light of the grace of God. Why? Because fully apprehending Christ's mercy leads to life change. You believe this? Notice how he says in verse 30 that it is the Holy Spirit that has sealed the Christian for the day of redemption, which is the end of the age, okay? And that language of sealed points us to ownership by God on our lives, yes? In other words, that God has ownership over us means he could command us. You believe that? And tell us what the shape of our lives should be and how our lives ought to look by his divine empowering. Now, Paul commands that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is key to our understanding of the Holy Spirit, okay? So I said in the first sermon of the series that you could resist a power or a force, but you could only grieve a person, right? This points us one more, once more to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Now I said in week one that I cannot grieve that chair, right, or that wall, or this podium, since they are inanimate objects, but I could grieve only a person. But we need to press into that a little bit more. It's not only that I can only grieve a person. I can only grieve a person who loves me. And this is key. John Phillips says this, grieve is a love word. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. You might annoy, upset, infuriate, or disappoint them, but you cannot grieve them. Like, let's say, this isn't the best illustration, but let's say you were in traffic on 75. You ever do that? Up towards Atlanta, right? And you aren't going quite as fast as the person behind you would you like. Has that ever happened to you? Some of y'all are like, what are you talking about? I go 90. And they ride your tail, right? And they make the gestures, and you look in the rearview mirror, they're clearly agitated. And they finally can pass you. And so they pass you, and as they do, they say all manner of words, right? And uh, hand gestures. Well, you're likely not thinking the rest of the day about how you disappointed that person, right? Like, like your day is not ruined because some stranger got mad at you. you. You aren't going home and thinking, boy, I can't believe I let that guy, whatever his name is, down, right? You're probably not bothered that much at all. You maybe laugh. <laughs> Why? Because you don't love them. They don't love you. You don't know them. You will likely never see them again, right? In the history of your life, you will never see them again. And even if you did, you probably wouldn't even know. Okay, but what about your husband 
or your wife, your children, your parents, or your siblings, you could grieve them, right? Through your actions. Say you did. Say you did something that hurt a family member, and you know you did. It's going to bother you, right? It's going to ruin your day or week or month. Why? Because you love them. And the fact that you can wound them so is evidence of that love. Paul says in verse 29 that our words, our words grieve the Spirit. He says that disunity, bitterness, slander, anger, all grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that when believers act in a way that harms their brothers and sisters in Christ, God himself is hurt and grieved. This is how important unity in the church is to God. To not have it is to grieve the Holy Spirit, who is, let's remember, God himself. Like, you can have a church, yes, that has a big budget, just killing it in the money department, have, have full auditorium, be busy with activity, have a million classes, a full calendar, but they're divided. If they have the presence of gossip and slander, disunity and ill will, they are grieving the Holy Spirit and out of step with the will of God. That's the thing about setting our sights on doing things in the church that you really don't need the Holy Spirit to accomplish, right? That's what makes that Tozer comment about the Holy Spirit were somehow withdrawn from the world. 95% of the churches, would go, would, what they do would go unnoticed is so profound. They probably brag about it, Right? Oh, you think you're crushing it? Well, the presence of disharmony in the body means you're actually grieving the Spirit, not glorifying Him. Is that not what the context of verse 30 is telling us? Isn't it? The Holy Spirit is grieved by the presence of sin in our lives as individuals and as a church. Don't you see that here? Why, though? Why is He grieved? Because He loves us. Because he wants what's best for us. And sin is not what's best for us. Because remember, sin kills. So it isn't that the Spirit is a killjoy, it's that he hates what kills our joy. And what kills our joy? Besetting sin. Not only because sin hurts you and others, but because it hurts him. And it wrecks your fellowship with him. Don't you see? Doesn't that take sin to a whole different level? Now, the only reason you could grieve the Spirit with your sin is because He loves you. You know, some people, people picture God as like this cosmic Santa Claus who's like watching you and making a list and He's checking in and He's keeping a record of all your wrongdoings. And in that sense, God is just this far away judge who will dispense good gifts if you behave. And when you break His rules, it's just that, breaking the rules of some far away detached judge. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God is nearer than the person sitting next to you right now. Isn't that what it says? He indwells you. And he so loves you that when you sin, you're not breaking the rules of some impersonal judge. You are breaking the heart of the loving Father, Savior, and Comforter. Is that not a huge difference? And it's in these truths that we have a motive for not grieving the Holy Spirit and for killing sin, for growing in grace, for knowing God more. You know, last Sunday marked the 504th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. 
One of the many things that the Reformation did was bring the doctrine of the Holy Spirit back to the fore. Okay? Michael Reeves tells of a debate that took place in 1539 between Roman Catholic Cardinal uh, Sadolito and reformer John Calvin. Okay? And the, 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 the Catholic Cardinal argued that if God saves people by grace alone, okay, apart from works, then people will not care to pursue holiness. Right? Why should I pursue holiness? God saves by grace alone. If I have grace, he said, then what's the point of doing anything at all? Well, Calvin rebutted by saying that the cardinal fundamentally misunderstood salvation as if it were something other than being brought to know, love, and so want to please a beautifully holy God. For Calvin, salvation was not about getting some thing called grace. It was about freely receiving the Spirit and so the Father and the Son. Reeves, he brings us around to the problem with seeing the Spirit as a force and not a person because when you see grace as simply a token of heaven lobbed down while God himself remains distant, then what is the motive except more tokens? But if we get the Spirit himself, then we have both the motive and the power to pursue life as he calls us to live. R.A. Tory said this, speaking of the indwelling spirit, I love this. He said, one dwells in our hearts if we are really Christian and he sees every act we do by day or under cover of the night. He hears every word we utter in public or in private. He sees every thought we entertain. He beholds every fancy and imagination that is permitted, even a momentary lodging in our mind. And if there is anything unholy, impure, selfish, mean, petty, unkind, harsh, unjust, or any evil act, or word, or thought, or fancy, he is grieved by it. If we allow those words, grieve not the Holy Spirit, to sink into our hearts and become the motto of our lives, this will keep us from many a sin. Let this thought grip you, friend. The Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, indwells you. You, you believe that? And he makes a home in your heart, and he's always with you, and he's always available to you. And he means to make you new and new and new, and he intends to help you grow in Christ-likeness, all because of why? Because he loves you. So when temptation comes before your eyes, call on him. He will help you. He wants to help you. Why? Because of his love and tenderness and kindness and affection. Finally, number four, the Spirit loves you. This is like number three, but fellowship with him. Spirit loves you, fellowship with him. For this, our final place we'll turn to is Jude, okay? Jude, it's the last book before Revelation, if you want to turn there. Jude, this is that book you can read in five minutes. Jude and verses 20 through 21. Jude 20 through 21. He says, but you, beloved, in contrast to the worldly people, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, now notice that Jude tells them to build themselves up, plural, that word themselves, yourself, plural, in your, plural, most holy faith, and is implicitly Trinitarian. Did you see that? The love of the Father through the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ praying in the Holy Spirit. Of course, it is that last one that we want to zero in on for our purposes. But it's important to note that salvation here is Trinitarian, 
right? So is perseverance and consummation. But praying in the Holy Spirit, of course, is something that only who can do? The Christian, right? And it is something that marks the believer and their life. When we pray, we have access to God because of the Holy Spirit as He applies the work of Christ to our lives. Prayer in the Holy Spirit defines the life of those who are the people of God. When we pray, we pray in Him, through Him, by Him, with Him. And since He is God, we could actually pray what? To Him. And why pray? Well, there are a host of reasons, right? But at the top of the list should be to have fellowship and intimacy with our triune God. Thomas Schreiner on this passage says, requests for furtherance of God's will and resistance of the devil's attack are the focus. Believers cannot keep themselves in God's love without depending on Him by petitioning Him in prayer. Love for God cannot be sustained without a relationship with Him, and such a relationship is nurtured by prayer. Prayer is one of the primary ways that we can have fellowship with God, and the Holy Spirit helps us along the way, right? Even like what we saw last week, even filling the gaps when we don't pray as we ought, when we can only groan, when we don't fully comprehend the will of God, the Spirit makes up for our weakness and inadequacy. The Puritan Thomas Matton on this passage summarized praying in the Spirit by saying the Holy Spirit helps us to pray with affection and confidence and reverence. And so every time you start to pray, look to the Holy Spirit who's been appointed by the Father and purchased through the Son to help you in this sweet service, says Matton. We should remember this every time we pray. Every time we pray. And it should give us further motive to pray. Not only does the Spirit give us access, He gives us assistance. Friend, can I ask, what is your life in the Holy Spirit like? I want you to think about that. Before the series ever started, what was your life in the Holy Spirit like? What's your spiritual life like altogether? Is it cold and lifeless and shallow and routine? I bet for some of you that's true. Why is that? You know, this morning, it was relatively cold, right? Is that fair to say? For Georgia? When I left the house, it was in the 40s, okay? Now, for the sake of argument, let's say that when you left the house this morning, you got in the car, and it was cold, and as you you were buckling in, your kid says from the back seat, I'm cold, okay? So you look back to them, right? And they have short sleeve shirt on, and there's a sweater bunched up in their lap. What would you say? You'd say, in a non-sarcastic way, of course, right? How about you unbunch that sweater that's right there in your lap? <laughs> and gee, I don't know. Put it on, right? So they put it on, and they say, now I'm warm. <laughs> And you're like, how about that? Maybe your soul and life has grown spiritually cold, but the answer to warm you up has been right there in front of you the whole time. Actually, the answer is closer than your lap. The answer dwells in you and with you at all times. Not a force or an it, but a divine person who loves you deeply. What you need is to not forget the Holy Spirit, and you need to go to Him, think of Him, and pray to and through Him. Ask for His power every morning 
Pick up his word as a habit of life and gather with the saints like you're doing right now as a non-negotiable of your life. And shouldn't all of this overwhelm us? The thought that the triune God would come and make a home with us. That, that he would seek us and purchase us at great cost. That, that he would woo us and win us. That he intends to make us new. That before the foundation of the world... The Trinity decided to move heaven and earth to get to wayward rebels like you and me. Like, shouldn't that do something to us? The Father says the Son who lived the life we failed to live and died the death that we should have died and was raised by the Spirit as the firstfruits of the resurrection that Christ the King ascended to the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit descended to convict sinful hearts, illumine the beauty of Christ so that fallen rebels could be turned into beloved children of God and be reconciled to their triune God and live for God's glory alone. But it gets better and better because the Spirit who convicts also applies the righteousness of Christ to the lives of believers and He comes and He indwells them. He helps them grow. He helps them pray. He points them more and more to Christ. Should not all of that motivate us to lean on the Spirit and go to the Spirit and pray in the Spirit and pray to the Spirit and partner with the Spirit to kill sin? And should not the reality of the Spirit in our midst as a church not cause us to be led by Him and His Word and trust in His power to be who He called us to be, come what may? You know, even as we end the series, I exhort you not only to not forget what you learn from the Word about the Holy Spirit, but you do not go, this is my prayer for you, to not go one more single day for the rest of your life without thinking about and praying to and in the Spirit. Every morning when your alarm goes off, maybe you reach first for your phone any of you do that? Yeah, of course you do. First thing you get is your phone. Check your email. So check your text or doom scroll Facebook. Perhaps instead you should pick up the word and pray to the Spirit of God to illumine for you, to strengthen you through the day, and to resist sin and to witness to others about Christ and glorify God. So as we end this series and move on to Luke, let's not forget again that we worship a triune God. When we sing here, we sing to a triune God. When we worship, we worship a God in Trinity. When we read the Bible, we read about a triune God. When we think of creation, salvation, sustaining grace and consummation, let's remember that's all possible through the Trinity equally and eternally. What are the effects which the Holy Spirit works in us? John Owens, John Owen answers thusly, and, and with this we'll close. He said these effects are his bringing the promises of Christ to remembrance, glorifying him in our hearts, shedding abroad the love of God in us, witnessing with us as to our spiritual estate and condition, sealing us to the day of redemption, being the earnest of our inheritance, anointing us with privileges as to their consolation, confirming our adoption, and being present with us in our supplication. Here is the wisdom of faith to find out and meet with the comforter in all these things, not to lose their sweetness by lying in the dark as to their author, 
nor coming short of returns which are required of us.